When you're born with a gift like this, you share it with the world. Let me not think on Frailty, thy name is woman. A little month. For ere those shoes were old with which she followed my poor father's body like Niobe, all tears. Why, she, even she, oh God, a beast at once discourse of reason would have mourned longer. Married with my uncle, my father's brother, but no more like my father than I to Hercules. Within a month, ere yet the salt of most unrighteous tears had left the flushing in her galling eyes, she married. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. The actor you were just enjoying a few seconds ago is, of course, the remarkable Derek Jacobi. We got to sit down for an extended conversation with Jacobi at the end of 2017. This is part two of that talk. You don't need to listen to part one in order to understand this interview, but we hope you will anyway. Mostly because we think you'll really enjoy it. In part one, Jacobi talked about playing Hamlet. This is a more general conversation about his career at large. And what a career it's been starting when he was just a high school boy in the 1950s and moving on to the West End, Broadway, movies, and television. We call this podcast... Oh, for a muse of fire. Derek Jacobi is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. You know, you'd think that being a Shakespeare podcast that we get to talk to a lot of actors, but that's not really the case. We talk, we talk to some, but you are certainly a treat. And I was hoping, because of this, that we could start the conversation in an actorly way with a vocal warm-up. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. <laughs> with that word, what do you usually do before a Shakespeare performance or any uh, performance? But vocally, I do some scales. A scale like a singing scale? Yes, uh-huh. yes, yes. Um, I had a years ago. I had a wonderful uh, American uh, voice coach when I was doing uh, Cyrano de Bergerac on Broadway, and he used to come into the dressing room and kind of roll me out flat on the floor with the Alexander technique, and then he'd start on my voice and all the things I do now to warm up are, are from him and what he taught me. Okay, so could we have a scale? <laughs> now, now you're pushing it. Now you are pushing it. It's uh, it's quarter past four on a December afternoon here in London. Uh, will you forgive me if I don't do a scale? Oh, it, it course, might come course, up rather badly. Well, I was thinking that um, Richard Burton gave you some advice about your voice. Oh, yes, he did. About how your voice is so beautiful that it might put the audience to sleep. That's right. No, he said your voice is... When you do your Shakespearean verse. Your voice is very mellifluous, he said, like mine. And he said, I used to go onto the top of a mountain in Wales and shout in order to roughen my voice up. And he said, I think you should do the same because you're in uh, great fear of, of, uh, as you say, putting people to sleep. Did you take his advice? For about five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) What if this cursed hand was thicker than itself with brother's blood? Is there not rain enough in the sweet heavens to wash it white as snow? 
We do serve mercy, but to confront the visage of offense. And what's in prayer? But this twofold force to be forestalled, here we come to fall, or pardoned being done. Did he ever give you any advice that you took? Um, no, not really. I, I knew him only uh, peripherally, really. I, we, we met originally when I was a student at Cambridge, and I was playing Hamlet. And we ended up, ended up in Lausanne, where he lived. And a fellow Welshman of his was also in our cast, playing Claudius in Hamlet. And so through him, I, I met Richard. And then when I got back to Cambridge, uh, there was a letter waiting for me from him saying, if ever you want to um, become a professional, and if ever I can do anything for you, let me know. And of course, I uh, immediately lost the letter. But then we met again many years later on a film set when I was doing just two days on a film that he was starring in. And he said, what are you doing with yourself these days? And I said, well, actually, I'm playing Hamlet at the Old Vic. And he said, I'll come and see you, which he did. And it was one of the thrills of my life when we, uh, he came around afterwards. And uh, as we were exiting the theater, he said, do you mind if we go and stand on the stage? I haven't stood on that stage for 25 years. And I stood beside my hero, having just played Hamlet and having seen him play Hamlet in that very theater as a schoolboy. And it was a thrilling moment. Well, I've been asking you so much about acting technique, uh, but you didn't actually go to drama school to learn to be an actor, and instead you went mm. to Cambridge. And and that means a lot to anyone who's English, but if you could explain for us an American audience and a 21st century American sure. audience, what does that mean? What is it about going to Cambridge that prepared you for this remarkable career of yours? Well, I was just uh, 19 when I went up to Cambridge, um, I'd played Hamlet for my school, and our enterprising English master had taken us to the Fringe at the Edinburgh Festival. This was 1957, um, and we got a lot of national coverage. So when I went up to Cambridge, I'd, I'd had a bit of uh, national publicity about this schoolboy Hamlet at Edinburgh. I also knew that um, I wanted to be an actor, uh, and also that Oxford and Cambridge were hotbeds of acting. So when I got into uh, Cambridge, the first thing I did was join dramatic uh, societies. And so each term, I acted. It sounds almost as if it's like being in a repertory company rather than a university. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely it was rep. Is that yes. what yeah. and, being, and, going up to Cambridge means for an actor? Um, it certainly was what it meant for me and for several of my contemporaries. And then when I left Cambridge, and I did go into a, a repertory company at Birmingham for three years, um, and that was a new play every four weeks for three years, that was really my, my drama school. A little, little grave. An obscure grave. Or I'll be buried in the King's Highway. Some way of common trade where subjects' feet may hourly trample on their sovereign's head. For on my heart they tread now whilst I live, and buried once my not upon my head. I don't think a drama school can teach you how to act. If you are an actor, you were an actor when you walked through the door of the drama school. 
It can teach you how to express what talent you have, how to hone what talent you have, but it can't give you the talent. There lies two kinsmen, dig their graves with weeping eyes. <laughs> Would not this ill do well? tradition that the leading young man at Birmingham would end up um, with the Royal Shakespeare Company. And after three years, I was called. I had a letter from God, otherwise known as Peter Hall, uh, inviting me to uh, join the company. And I was thrilled. I went to the powers that be at Birmingham and said, will you let me go? Um, Stratford has called. And they said, go with our blessing. And then about a week later, I got a, um, a letter saying, would I go over to the Royal Shakespeare um, the Memorial Theatre uh, to meet everybody? So I went. Um, I, at the stage door, I was given a copy of The Tempest and told to read Ariel. So they gave me 10 minutes to look at it. I went out onto the stage. And so read, it's an audition. It was an audition, which I wasn't expecting. And, and all oh. the directors were there. It was like Olympus. Michel Saint-Denis, Peter Brook, uh, Clifford Williams... Peter Hall. I mean, they were all there. And I launched into Lord. Ariel, like a kind of sick choir boy. And at the end of it, Peter Brook came to the edge of the stage and said the equivalent of, don't call us, we'll call you. And I went back to Birmingham and uh, I got another letter saying, we don't think you're ready for the uh, Shakespeare Company. So I had to go back to the powers that be at Birmingham and say, can I have my job back? It was my first and I think biggest disappointment of my career. Anyway, luck was with me. You, you are talking to the luckiest actor that ever was. Um, well, I think so, because but, it all worked out in the end. You went back to Birmingham, and, and isn't that where Lawrence Olivier yeah, saw you? Yeah, I went back to Birmingham, and it was, it was the 50th anniversary. And uh, to celebrate, they were going to do the three Shakespeare plays they'd never done, which were Titus Andronicus, Troilus and Cressida, and Henry VIII. And they cast me as Troilus, Henry VIII, and Aaron the Moor in Titus. Three spanking great Shakespeare roles in repertoire for 15 weeks. And one Wednesday matinee, I was playing Henry VIII, and Lawrence Libby was out front, liked what he saw, and offered me a job. And that company that I then joined with him became the first national theatre company at the Old Vic in London. So you shared the stage with Olivier, and you had this long friendship with them. Yes. Is there anything of his that comes back to you when you're in the midst of a performance? That, that kind of deja vu, I, I imagine, maybe you don't have this, but I imagine actors can have, because you have muscle memory of the performers that you mm. watched and admired and, and, and responded to that came before you. I think what I remember most was his bravery, his courage as an actor. And the choices he made, choices that involved danger, 
he was one of those actors who thought, where, where did he think of doing that? Where did that come from? And, of course, it was often spectacular. There was one um, play called um, Love for Love when he was playing Mr. Tattle. Wonderful, wonderful comic performance. Um, I was in the other half of the company, but I saw it. And then, this was um, at the end of the 60s, um, he got cancer and he had to go into hospital. But he didn't like his understudy. And I was called into his dressing room and asked to take over as Tattle. I wasn't in that half of the company. So uh, this was on a Thursday and I was due to go on in his place on the Tuesday. I saw him do it again on the Monday. I learnt my lines over that weekend. Saw him do it on Monday with kind of field glasses trained on him. And when it was announced that uh, Sir Lawrence was off, the groan that went up from the audience could be heard at Waterloo Station. Um, It was a deep, deep dissatisfied groan. But... The payoff was that uh, um, there were a couple, an American couple, who came late. And the box office manager um, installed them at the back of the dress circle and said, you know, at the interval, we can put you in your proper seats. And at the interval, he went to them and to take them to their proper seats. um, And he said, are you enjoying it? And they said, yeah, the old man's doing great. (laughs) 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 <laughs> they hadn't heard the announcement, um, which uh, was... Oh, well, that would horrify Olivia. Uh, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Larry wouldn't like that. No, but, but you see, again, when I talked about his, his, his bravery and his courage, he did a piece of business in that um, at the age of, what, he was 65 then, that I, at the age of 27, 28, couldn't begin to do. I had to do something else. It was too dangerous. You mean leaping out of a window? He came out of a window. He slid down the roof. He walked along um, the top of a wall in high heel shoes. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. (laughs) Well, we've talked about Hamlet and uh, you in Hamlet, uh, the big young role. And uh, not too long ago, in 2011, you played the the huge older role in Shakespeare of Lear. Yes. I have to ask you, how did the two compare for you in difficulty oh, or, or challenge? Well, when you're young and you have any aspirations to be a classical actor, you're judged on your Hamlet. If your Hamlet's good enough, you're kind of, you're let into the club. Uh, but then you have to justify your entry years later by doing Lear. And I waited and waited. I never felt old enough. And I I was eventually 74 when I did it. Because um, the the director, Michael Grandage, um, said, you know, unless you do it now, you just won't have the physical uh, stamina to do eight King Lears a week. Uh, because and it's a bear of a role. You're on stage. It's, oh lot, yes, yes. It, it's huge. It's absolutely huge, physically and vocally and mentally. It's enormous. So I said, okay. Well, I'm. I'm. You know, I've still got all my faculties, and I'm. I'm fairly limber. And uh, it's one of the things that actors have to have, actually, um, health and stamina, apart from a modicum of talent. It had the Lear. For me, in the preparation of the Lear, it had echoes for me of, that, of Hamlet, because Hamlet was the first biggie that I'd ever done. And 
in the back of my head, I thought, well, this is the last biggie that I'll do. And it was wonderful. Well, what did you love about it? Because Lear is so angry and so confrontational, and, and you seem it, so the opposite of that. Well, it, it, it appeals to all my instinctive actors' juices. It is one of those, like Hamlet, but even more so than Hamlet, I think, where you are asked to play every instrument in the orchestra, not to not to be a wonderful cellist or a wonderful violinist. You've got to be a, the entire orchestra. Um, and the demands that it makes on an actor, if you can climb that Himalayan mountain, it's the, the, Do you the mean fe- the emotional arc? Oh, from, the, from yes, the, the emotional autocratic, the, and, the, and the also, arrogant leer of the beginning. To yes, and all, and the the diminution. The, it is so many layered. It is so textured, and you can use every every uh, note in 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 your repertoire. A, a, a note in your voice, note in your body. He asks you to use. What you are, what you have, your whole being. That is true, of of course, of of acting itself. But with Lear, to communicate that to the audience, to actually um, impress on the audience what, what you are going through and hopefully what they are going through because it is about it is for them we don't do it for ourselves they must feel it i mean it's it's fine if you if you start crying on stage oh look he's crying yeah that's fine but if you're dry eyed it ain't so fine You've got to be crying, too. Well, your director in that production, uh, Michael Grandage, said mm. that he worried about how much of yourself you gave to the performance every night, that you always yes. went to that place of sobbing over Cordelia's yeah. death scene night after night, and that some actors resort to, you know, the technique or tricks yeah, I, instead I, of I, feeling the full emotional burden of it every time on the, over the course of a long run. I but suppose, you arrive there. How, how do you do that? I suppose I cry easily. I um, death and and particularly the death of a loved one uh, is very moving. I can't see how you can play that scene dry-eyed. Uh, Do you think about one particular loss as you're playing? I used to, yes. I've only ever seen one person die. Uh, I saw my father die. And... Um, there was a, a play I did called A Voyage from My Father several years ago in which at the end I'm in a wheelchair and I have to die. And I remember mimicking what I'd seen. I got in my head said, I hope you don't mind, Dad, but I'm going to uh, use what I saw you go through in death. I'm going to use it on stage to entertain people. I hope you don't mind. And I don't think he did. Um, And I recreated what I'd seen. And several people came up afterwards and said, you know, we really thought you'd gone. But that that wasn't a tearful thing. That was merely trying to reproduce somebody's last seconds. Um, But to lose um, a loved one who has been, you know, murdered, I can't see how you can carry her body onto a stage without 
remembering when she was alive, and surely that, you can't stop the tears then. Well, last year, um, you, ironically, you were cast as Mercutio <laughs> after yes. after playing the great Lear. You were you were Mercutio, which is usually played by a rather young man or younger man. You they put that so elegantly. <laughs> <laughs> Hardly. <laughs> um, but Kenneth Branagh directed that. Yes. And, yes. and I wonder what 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 was why did he go for you for that role? What was the well, conversation around? Well, that? I've worked a lot with Ken and, and um, Mutual Admiration Society. Um, I've known Ken since he was eighteen when he came to my dressing room to interview me and I was playing Hamlet at the Vic. Anyway, the the, the Mercutio, my first reaction was, well, Mercutio's one of the boys, isn't he? I mean, he's, he's Romeo and Benvolio and Mercutio. They're, they're kids. And he said, no, he wanted uh, an older Mercutio. And I said, well, where have you got that from? And he said, I've always remembered a story I was told many years ago about George Orwell who went to Paris for the weekend and with some friends, and he was sitting in a bar. And there was an elderly gentleman in the corner, and they sent him over a drink. And uh, he eventually joined them. And he was great fun. He was witty and uh, experienced. And, uh, you know, the boys liked his company, but eventually he left. And they said to the barman, is he a regular? And the barman said, yes, yes, he's, he's always in a... Do you know who he is? And the barman said, yeah, of course, it's Oscar Wilde. And <laughs> that, said Ken, um, convinced me that Mercutio could be this older man, uh, witty, experienced, great company. He enjoys the boys' company. They enjoy his company. Um, and then it, make, it, it also makes his death more poignant. And I can only say that uh, once she told me that, and I had a go, it worked. It did work. It did work. And I enjoyed it very much. You've said in the past that, that you are plagued by stage fright. Were you plagued by stage fright in, in this last appearance last year? Um, no. V- vestigially, I think is the word. Um, oh, are you? Do you think it's, it's finally behind you? It's always in the back of your head. If, I I went through it for two years. I didn't go on stage for two years um, because I I got it. I I did it to myself stupidly. Um, uh, but you did I, it to yourself right in the middle of the to be speech, wasn't uh, it? Right in the middle wasn't of Hamlet. That? Yes. Yeah. Um, Why there, do you think? Well, I, it was the last day of a, a world tour. We were in Australia, in Sydney. And it was the last performance. And uh, our interval came before the nunnery scene. So the first thing I had to do after the interval was to be or not to be. And I'm in the wings waiting for my cue. And I was thinking, you know, when any actor says to be or not to be, there's a special almost tangible silence that falls on the audience. It's the phrase that everybody knows. And when an actor actually says it in context on the stage, you can almost hear a a sort of little sharp intake of breath in the audience. It's a a magic moment. Um, And I'm thinking this in in the wings, and then I thought, what would happen if an actor forgot it? And Anyway, I heard my cue. I went on. Uh, To be or not to be, that is the question, whether... It is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a... What comes next? 
What the hell comes next? I'd done it nearly 400 times. So Automatic Pilot took over and it came out. And the rest of the play came out. So did every bit of sweat in my body. Every pore opened. And I was sort of in a catatonic state. My toes became talons in my shoes. Otherwise I'd have fallen over. And... uh, it was so violent a reaction because I was so confident that I I knew it. I'd done it all these times um, that uh, it shook. I didn't go on stage for two years. And you just said you did it to yourself. I did. So well, I'd, I'd, I'd put... Is there a moral for you in in, in this story of, of stage fright? Yeah. Don't, don't ever question. Don't ever question yourself. I By asking... Uh, that, that question, what if I dropped, what if I forgot it? I was questioning my ability to act, my enjoyment of acting. All those questions that you think, those silly questions that the public are, how do you learn your lines? Yes, how do I learn my lines? How do you get up in front of a thousand people? Yes, how do I get up in front of a thousand people? Once you've asked those questions of yourself, questions that didn't apply. I mean, you just did it. You just did it. That was, once you ask those questions, uh, you shouldn't ask them. You shouldn't ask them. I, even talking to you about it now, you know, is silly. Silly, really, because I'm asking them again. So, um, but you shouldn't. You shouldn't. There's something very leer about it. The, a fear that, ev- or, or the reality of things, of loss, of, of, of things. Yes, yes. Leaving, leaving you that, that you once... Had, yes, had yes, over. yes, and I, it was it was awful. Um, you know, as I say, I didn't go on stage for two years, and I did, I did, I worked in front of cameras. But even there, I wasn't, I wasn't at ease. I wasn't at ease. And cameras, you're surrounded by safety nets. Um, but I still was totally at ease. Well. I have many questions for you, and I could ask them all day, but I've never asked the question of, you know, what makes you a great actor. That is so, so apparent, and it's been such a pleasure to hear how you think about your work and your craft. Thank you so much. My great pleasure. Thank you. Derek Jacobi was a founding member of Britain's Royal National Theatre. He's won a Tony Award, a Primetime Emmy, a Laurence Olivier Award, and a BAFTA from the British Academy of Film and Television Arts. He was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. This is part two of our interview with Jacoby. In part one, he talks about playing Hamlet, which he has done more than 400 times in his career. Oh, for a Muse of Fire was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. Esther French is the web producer. Special thanks to Janet Alexander-Griffin, the Fulcher's Director of Public Programs and Artistic Producer. We had production help from Michelle Morton at the Royal Shakespeare Company, James Ranahan and Paul Taylor from the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust, Andrew Feliciano at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, and Kathy Devlin at The Sound Company in London. We hope you're enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited. If you are, we hope you'll do us a favor please consider rating and reviewing the podcasts on whichever platform you use. When you do that, it helps us get the word out to people who haven't heard it yet. Thank you. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. 
You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.